Hello and welcome to another episode of Material Matters with Grant Gibson. I've done more than 100 shows now. However, for listeners who might be new to all this, the idea is I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. Today, I couldn't be happier to talk to Sarah Grady and Alice Robinson. The pair co-founded British Pasture Leather in 2020. The company aims, in its own words, to link leather with exemplary farming and in doing so to redefine leather as an agricultural product. All of which, I suspect we will discover, means creating a new network of systems within the industry. Essentially, they're attempting to make the material we buy traceable in the same way food is. In 2022, the duo created an exhibition entitled Leather from British Pastures during the London Design Festival, which included collaborations with the likes of Mulberry and New Balance, as well as Material Matters favourites Bill Amberg and Simon Hassan. More recently, Alice has written a new book, Field Fork Fashion, which charts a bullock's journey from the field to a series of finished products and dishes, essentially creating her own supply chain in the process. Alice, Sarah, thank you very much for doing this. How are you both? Very well, thank you. Thank you for having us. Oh, that's a complete pleasure. I mean, we're on Zoom doing this, which means for technical reasons, you are in different places. Um, so where are you, Alice? I am in Peckham, um, in a flat that is slowly warming up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in Containerville in Hackney. We share a workspace here with, uh, with a colleague. Okay. And I mean, Sarah, I'm guessing, judging by the number of scarves you're wearing, you have taken the woolly hat off now, I notice, I guess, to put the headphones I'm on. starting to warm up. <laughs> it's quite cold where you are, I'm guessing. It is. It's a cold, bright winter day. Okay. Now I can see a little bit over Zoom of your studio, but um, it'd be nice for the listeners. Maybe you could describe it for us. Is it full of cow hides? It is. It's filled with long narrow boxes that contain rolls of leather, which to be honest, are very unwieldy in container that's on the third floor of a, of a pile of boxes. <laughs> and I mean, is it tidy? Are you both tidy people or how do you both work? What are you doing shaking your head? We're not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to show you our stuff. What, what you're seeing behind me is actually our colleague's stuff. <laughs> Because our stuff is a is a big messy pile, which is again the the fact is we probably need a different type of space because we mm. have been developing and growing such that we're um, starting to consider a, a different physical setup. We've actually managed to come as far as we have with just quite a lot of very flexible work from from home and from here and from traveling around and bouncing around. So a very kind of virtual operation, actually. Mm. And which one of you is the tidy one? Which one is the messy one? Or, or do you both work similarly? Alice? No, actually, I think we work quite differently. I think I have a, I have a, a certain way of organised chaos, which is probably just me not coming to terms with the fact that I need to adopt more, you know, clear systems approach to the way that we're working. But I think we're pretty good. We're pretty good. We know where everything is. As I was saying, over the last couple of years, we have been working in quite a fluid way. So it will be very nice when we hopefully soon have a setup where we can can work and, and show what we're doing actually in an in a easier capacity. Okay, well, let's talk about how the majority of leather is produced. Sarah, can you take us through the process from the animal leaving the farm? 
Sure. Then we're talking about bovine leather here. Yes. Let's concentrate on the bovine. Yeah. Most leather in the world comes from cattle that are raised for beef. So when a farmer takes their beef cattle to the slaughterhouse and that animal is processed for meat, the hide is removed from the carcass. And then hides from meat carcasses are piled up at the slaughterhouse. And within 12 to 24 hours, they are salted for preservation. Typically, they are removed from the slaughterhouse for that by a trader who specializes in aggregating hides for that trade of that raw material. Mm. And a really crucial point here is that actually it is the abattoir that sells the hide onto those hide traders. So not the farmer. Exactly. Right. Yeah. There's a misperception that farmers sell the hides of their cattle into the leather mm. industry, and that is not the case. It is actually the slaughterhouse that sells that hide on. And we can talk more about why that is and what that does. But just to carry forward with your question, the hides then are in very large number aggregated and traded as raw material that gets sold onto tanneries and various processors along the chain of that process before it becomes leather material. It can change location several times through the leather making process. And it can travel around the world a couple of times before it becomes a, a finished product that uses leather. Interesting. So at the tannery itself, I understand that the process uses chromium, which is toxic. And in less well-regulated countries, that toxic waste is simply pumped into the nearest river, which I'm guessing has profound ecological effects. Would I be right in thinking that, Alice? Yeah. So um, the method of chrome tanning was invented in the 1850s to 1880s. And it was an invention that really sped up the process of making leather. So before that, a more um, traditional method and popular method was using vegetable tanning, which uses barks and leaves and extracts of vegetable tannins. And the invention of chrome tanning meant that the time in which it took to make leather was sped up considerably and that it produced a different type of material. So Chrome tanned leather produces a material that can be dyed to brighter colours. It reacts really well to, to dye stuffs. Um, it has a higher heat tolerance than vegetable tan leather, so it won't crack under the pressure of things like shoemaking or more industrial production methods of product development. And globally, that method accounts for around 80% of all leather produced today. What you just alluded to in terms of the, the effluent potentially causing harm to workers or communities where that effluent isn't treated properly and it is leached into the natural environment is something of a huge concern of that method of production. So there is a group called the Leather Working Group. So it's a LWG certification which audits tanneries and they have different audit specifications of gold, silver and bronze that audit tanneries to ensure that that isn't the case um, across the world those audits are carried out, but that accounts for around 16% of the total leather production around the world. 16? 16. Right. Which is not very many, obviously. It's not very many. And um, it is of concern because that uh, method of production can be much cheaper than other methods. And it's a huge concern when that work is being carried out in places where it can be of detriment to communities and those ecosystems. And presumably, tanning something with chromium affects its compostability, I'm guessing. 
So it doesn't affect its biodegradability. So it biodegrades very quickly in terms of it will reduce itself to a biodegradable material, but the toxicity of that material has been impacted. So it's very hard to then separate that chrome from that biodegraded piece of leather. So yeah, it affects the impact of its return to earth, essentially. Yeah. So in other words, the chrome leaches into the earth once it's biodegraded. Mm -hmm. A lot of the leather you buy from stores is encased in plastic. And the grain of the leather might not necessarily be its actual grain. Is that true, Sarah? Yes, that is true. So most leather has been highly manipulated. And um, it's something that I think most of us don't quite realize because that finishing process, um, the last stage of production when the finished qualities of the leather are determined, is very sophisticated and and can often be quite convincing in suggesting to you that you are experiencing the natural qualities of that material when in fact it's often been highly manipulated. So um, very often what happens is that the surface of the material, so the, the grain side of the leather, has been buffed or effectively kind of sanded. So some of that surface has been removed. And then it gets printed, as you said, embossed with a pattern. And um, that can be any sort of pattern that's, you know, been designed to um, for one of those embossing plates. But it is very often a grain-like pattern. So it's kind of imitating what might be a natural leather grain. And then it's coated with a pigment or a resin and polyurethane. And that is because we tend to expect leather to be very high performing in being resistant to water or stains. Um, And also, I think we're not accustomed to leather as a material changing quite a lot, you know, as we use a product that's made from leather. Older leather goods or heirloom leather goods, which maybe weren't as highly manipulated with some of the, you know, modernized techniques that I've just described. You know, you might have seen things that change a lot or that have stains and a kind of patina of use. And that's something that Alice and I are really embracing in the production of the material that we're making is really to find a way to produce material that is still of a very high quality and extremely durable and beautiful, but that expresses more of its natural character. Yeah, yeah. Well, we will talk on about that very shortly, I'm sure. I mean, obviously, in this country and others, there's a rise of veganism. So there is a constituency that won't touch material, and that's fair enough. But I suspect there are other misconceptions floating about about leather. Cattle, for instance, isn't raised for its skins, right? Absolutely not. The value of the hide in terms of the monetary value that is being attributed to all parts of one animal is minute. It accounts for around 1%, 1 to 2% of the overall value. I think at the moment, the hide is equivalent to that value of the overall animal. So no farmer would raise cattle for that reason. However, in great quantities, as you can expect, that value can then accumulate. So what one of the challenges is, is that because hides and skins or hides in this case have quite a small value that accumulating them in large volumes is quite critical to efficiencies in the leather supply chain. Yeah, I'm kind of intrigued because meat consumption is set to rise, I think by 14% by the end of the decade, according to a recent report from the UN Environmental Programme. By the same token, people are finding alternatives to leather. What is that doing to the price and also the perceived or otherwise value of leather? Well, at the moment, 
the Hyde Leather Council of America have done some early work to try to understand how many hides globally are entering the leather value chain and what number are currently are not and value isn't being brought to them. And they estimate that around 45% of hides aren't making it into a leather value chain and they are either going into incineration or into landfill. So there is a glut of hides, as Sarah often says that term, globally. And um, the the desire for meat consumption is not leveled to that of a desire for leather production. And um, I think that that misconception of animals being raised for their skins, hides and skins, really needs to be clarified in that because that is a misconception. So is the purpose of British pasture leather in that case to persuade people to think and value the material differently, Sarah? Yes, and to appreciate and value the agricultural practices that look after animals and that actually benefit from the presence of ruminant animals. So building on your last question, my personal feeling is that the criticisms of meat and leather that we often hear are justifiable when we're talking about factory farming or industrialized farming, which is in fact what is supplying most of the raw material into the global leather industry. But our work with British Pasture Leather is focused on creating different supply of leather that is quite distinct by choosing raw material, cattle hides, from farms that are looking after animals and looking after land and ecosystems and rural communities by using regenerative farming practices. So we're doing something that does not happen in that process that I just described of you know global leather production, which is making a distinction around the farming practice in which that animal was raised. And how do you find your farms? Thus far, we have been partnered with a wonderful farming organization called Pasture for Life, which provides a certification here in the UK that indicates the highest standard of animal welfare and, and ecological practice on the farm. Okay. So tell me the process then. You've, you've got the regenerative farms, but then is your leather being made in a different way? Presumably it's not using chrome. Traditionally, leather was tanned using things like urine and brains, but I'm guessing you haven't gone back to that. No, we haven't. And actually, our production really starts um, and the, the critical point of production is is being able to gather and collect the hides of those cattle that are coming from pasture fly farms. So one key part of our way of working is being able to identify some of the services that are really crucial to those farm enterprises. So many of the farms that we're working with are of a smaller scale and are producing food for local communities or to have direct sales. So one of the services that they require is a type of abattoir that can offer them a service where they can have the same carcass returned back to them, either to be butchered themselves or to be butchered by an abattoir. And that is a service called private kill. Right. That is typically only really offered by small scale and medium sized abattoirs in the UK. And um, as we've just described of the um, huge volumes of hides that are produced globally and the fact that the leather industry doesn't have the demand to collect and produce material from them all. In many cases, the hides that are being produced at those abattoirs aren't necessarily making it into the dominant leather supply chain and are in cases going to incineration or landfill from the offset. And that is a burden to the viability of those smaller scale and linchpin services for rural communities and rural food producers. So we start by identifying what services the pasture fly farmers are using. 
and then work from that place forward to ensure that when the hide is removed, it is segregated and that traceability is preserved. Is the hide then going back to the farmer in your process? No. It's, okay, so I'm going to use some technical jargon now. The fifth quarter, yes. which is uh, something I learned. Quickly, what is the fifth quarter? So the fifth quarter is all parts of the animal that are not deemed the four quarters. So the two right and left four quarters and two hind quarters. The fifth quarter, which was historically called the butcher's profit, is made up of all other edible parts of the animal. So uh, the bones, the blood, the offal, the hide. And that is typically what... Um, an abattoir can trade. So there are other services and aggregators of those products that can go into cosmetics, go on to further food production, to pet food or collagen, or into the leather industry. So the hide is a part of that fifth quarter product. So your hide is still owned by the abattoir. Yes. And you have to persuade the abattoir to send it to a very particular tannery. So what we do is we work with an abattoir and with a hide collector that is either hopefully already servicing that abattoir or in some cases we have made new connections from hide collectors to build new relationships with abattoirs so that we can ensure the collection of those hides. So we then work with someone called a hide collector who will collect those hides, as Sarah said, sort of within 12 hours of their removal. And that's really critical because after that period of time, the hide can start to degrade and preservation is is really, really important. And that can be done through refrigeration or salting. And so we work with a fantastic hide collector who has a separate part of his business where he accumulates our hides until we are ready to take them to a tannery. Okay. And what is the state currently of tanning in the UK? Is it an industry that's thriving? Sadly, it is not. It is an industry that is withering. So at one time, there would have been many tanneries in the UK, and we're down to just a handful remaining. So when Alice and I have sufficient number of hides being held, salted and palletized at our hide collector, mm. we then bring them to a tannery that uses a traditional vegetable tanning process, which was the only tannery in the UK that we were able to work with to provide us with this service. So we're incredibly fortunate that we have access to that service through this tannery. And the reason for that loss of leather production infrastructure in the UK really is globalization. So everything we talked about before, you know, the fact that there's cheaper production elsewhere. It's a tragic loss like so many other traditional crafts and foods because obviously the skills and the artisanship around leather production and leather craft here in the UK has been shrinking. So are you campaigning against the global system? You know, the fact that leather is shipped around the world and people don't know the provenance of this material, what farm it came from, what conditions the animal might have been kept in. I mean, is this part of your raison d'etre? I think Alice and I each came to this topic independently and individually from different perspectives, but both identifying the same kind of puzzling 
fact, which is that leather is disconnected as a material from agriculture, and yet it is a product of our food system. And, you know, the fact that we don't tend to think of leather as an agricultural product generally, you know, in our material culture was something that puzzled us and intrigued us. And so I think, you know, the the place that we've started from is really this objective to reconnect leather with agriculture and to do that in a way that's incredibly positive by focusing on regenerative farming practices that bring enormous benefit to land, to ecosystems, to animals, you know, and to rural communities. And so we obviously are doing that in a very localized way. You know, we're really focused on the UK. And so, you know, we've set out, first of all, as I mentioned, by partnering with the regenerative agricultural community in the UK as the source of our material. And then also with great determination, you know, trying to produce leather entirely in Britain, which is actually, you know, broadly speaking, quite unusual to have a to have a regional leather in the way that mm. we're producing. And you're going to have to rejuvenate an entire supply chain to do this by the sound of it. Yeah, there are a couple of other tanneries in the UK, which we may have the opportunity to work with. And as I said, you know, the, the relationship with the tannery that we're working with right now is vital to our production. And so our hope is that we can, you know, bring them some support also just by, you know, by being a customer of theirs. But the volumes are very small right now. And so in order for us to develop any scale that will make our production viable, we will need other options. I definitely think there is space to articulate a new vision for British leather that attempts to address this problem of the loss of leather production infrastructure, but that also crucially unites leather with agriculture, you know, and brings the design community together with the leather industry and the farming community. That is something that does not typically happen. And one of the things that I've enjoyed enormously in doing the work that Alice and I do together, especially as a relative newcomer to this country, is that Alice and I are probably the only people that are personally familiar with every point along the supply chain of leather in the sense that we know the farmers, we know the abattoir operators, we know the hide collectors, we know the tanner, we know the leather finisher, and we know the artisans in the leather workshops. And now we're getting to know the brands that will be using that material. And it's been very striking to me that we might interact, for example, with a designer that specializes in leather goods, who's not only ever visited the place where the leather was made, but most certainly has not been to the abattoir or the farm that that material came through. I hope you're enjoying the show. This is just to let you know that the Material Matters Fair will return to Barge House, Oxo Tower Wharf this September from Wednesday the 18th to Saturday the 21st. Keen to exhibit? Do drop me a line at hello at materialmatters.design. That's hello at materialmatters.design. Also, if your brand is looking to reach the design world, there are a plethora of sponsorship opportunities. My partner, William Knight, and I would be delighted to hear from you. Right, on with the episode. Are your hides discernibly different? You know, can you tell one of your hides? Do they look different? Do they feel different, I wonder, after all the processes you've been through? Alice, do you want to take that? What a hide looks like as a finished piece of leather is determined both of what the origins of the raw material and the tanning process has gone through. So we are working, as Sarah said, with a group of pasture flow farmers who rear their animals on pasture 100% of the time. And many farmers, for that reason, choose to rear native breed cattle. And 
as they are well adapted to eat grass and pasture and forage and often live outdoors throughout the year. For that reason, many of the hides are very thick. They have been adapted through evolution to be able to weather those systems. And in terms of thickness, some of our hides are, are really thick. And because of the nature of those animals' lives, having been out on pasture and in farming systems that use woodlands for shelter or have hawthorn hedgerows for forage, that many of the hides are what we like to term littered with character. So there are imperfections is what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, imperfections. And, and that is a result of a, a longer life yeah. because of different breed types. Those animals can be alive longer. So up to 30 months often, whereas many animals in other types of farming systems can get to a full grown weight much faster. So there are differences in the hide character and quality from that perspective. And the process that Sarah described that we are taking these hides through is also quite different from, as we said, the majority of leather that is produced. So yes, I would say it is quite distinct in that fact. And we've also chosen not to adopt some of the more traditional methods of creating a finished piece of leather in manipulating the skin so that it has much enhanced performance capabilities. And I think one of the parts of this discussion which needs to be addressed also is much of the directors of the leather industry are trying to appease the desires of a design community that have sort of fed a material to a customer that has sort of deceived them of what its natural character should be and what its expectations of it really are. And so I think it's just really important for us to be clear that the way that this material is being produced isn't because the leather not to speak for them, but that the leather community thinks it should be made cheaply and covered in plastic because many of the tanners and tanneries that we've been in and we've said we want to produce it this way, when the finished material is there, so many of the responses have been like, this is what leather used to look like or what how we wish it did look like or this is what their love for the material is because of that uniqueness in the material as well. Yeah, yeah. So what you're saying, as consumers, we need to be used to imperfection get to grips with imperfection being a something that's standard almost, if you like, and in some ways redefine our sense of quality. Yeah, well, I think that question of quality is a very interesting one because the terms of the more conventional leather industry in defining quality is very much tied to what Alice is describing, which is uniformity and standardization. And this is not a material that is inherently uniform or standardized. It's a natural material. This is a material that, you know, was part of a living animal. So there's a lot of language in the leather industry that also drives that sense. So even the fact that we're calling it an imperfection or a flaw, when in fact it's a mark of the life of the animal. I'm calling it imperfection, you're calling it character. <laughs> well, there's there's an interesting term that the finishers use when they conduct the process that I described before, where that evidence of the animal's life is removed and replaced with a standardized coding. And the term is correction. Right. So, you know, I think there's a strong role that language plays <laughs> mm. in this perception of quality. You know, but as Alice described, also the material that we're producing is different in the sense that the hides we receive are quite thick. And because the animal has 
grown eating its natural diet according to its natural habit. It's a very dense, strong fiber structure. So we have thick, strong hides. So that's a very high quality because that will result in a strong, durable material. But we had a very amusing moment very early in our production when we were extremely excited and really nervous about our pilot production with our first hides that were in their unfinished state arriving at the finishing facility. So the the hides go through the tannery, as we mentioned before, and then in in their unfinished state, they're relocated to the finishing facility and and the first batch is being delivered. And I was very keen to know what the finishers thought of this base material. And I knew that it would look different, you know, because it's it's got growth marks and scratches and all this thing. And I said, so what do you think? Do you think that these would normally be treated as seconds? And the finisher said, these aren't seconds. These are rejects. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, it, it's sort of testament to, I think, the brilliance of that finisher and, and also kind of our persistence and determination that actually the finished leather that is emerging from that process is incredibly beautiful. And it's not all scratched up. But it's simply that hides typically are graded according to their quality with this particular question in mind, which is unscratched, you know, because Mm. again, that's how the conventional leather industry defines quality. And, you know, we're trying to make the case for accommodating for that in some way, you know, in our appreciation and in our valuing of that material and the design process, as Alice mentioned. I'm wondering how you make that case. I mean, both to the industry, but also ultimately to the consumer. I mean, you're making it here. Hundreds of thousands of people will be listening to this, I'm sure. But are there other avenues you are pursuing? So I think the case sort of starts with, what is this material? I want to be using it. What is the result of working with farmers that are rearing animals for food in this way? And therefore, what does this material look like? And I think that we have to start the case making from that point. I think it's been really hard. I mean, from my perspective been really hard to actually find what the image or the story or the origins are of the material sometimes so it's very hard to understand what our perception and expectations of the materials quality and aesthetic can be or should be and I think that's been a really exciting part of this work and being able to take it through all of these stages that Sarah just explained is that we're able to understand the implications of working with this farming community in terms of what type of material it results in. I think that that is quite a good case for explaining why something looks and performs a certain way by starting with the values that we have started from in wanting to work with a material that is a product of this farming system. And therefore, this is the way it looks. And these are the different methods that we can use to improve on its appearance or change its appearance or work with it aesthetically. May I add to that? Yeah. (laughs) I want to say that one of the ways in which we are making the case is by saying that the true natural character that you're seeing in the finished leather that we're producing is an emblem of the benefits of the farming systems that we're sourcing from. So again, in a landscape like we have here in the UK that grows grass well, ruminant animals are important partners in stewarding those landscapes. And their presence on the land will increase soil health, increase biodiversity, increase ecosystem function. And so when we can say that the character of the leather Um, is representative of its quality, it's because those benefits are embedded in that material. How do cows 
improve the environment? And you went through a checklist, but how do they do that? When they're eating grass, the regrowth of the grass through photosynthesis is increasing the, the soil health and soil carbon. The trampling of their hooves on the land also has an effect in increasing the resilience of that land. And then, of course, their manure, bringing fertility to the land. So it's animal impact. And cattle specifically can have a very profound effect on increasing the resilience of land, drought resistance, flood resistance, increased, as I said, increased biodiversity and just overall resilience. In fact, there's a farmer that we've had the great privilege to work with very often in our work called Nikki Yoxall, who's the um, head of research for Pasture for Life and is farming in Scotland, who speaks of her farming enterprise by saying that she is actually farming for ecosystem benefits benefit, that food is a byproduct of that operation. So that's testament to the positive impact of those animals. But I just wanted to add one other thing to this question around <laughs> quality and finishing, yeah. just to say, not all of our leather is all scratched up. <laughs> okay. <And> so- <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. You can buy unscratched. <laughs> that is so funny. <laughs> Good to know. So, so they're less characterful, presumably. Well, I mean, the you know what what we're talking about <laughs> here joking, is Sarah. is that yeah is the natural grain the growth marks you know and yeah. occasionally a scar or a scratch and you know as Alice has said and I'm sure as we're about to hear quite a lot more about when we start talking about her design practice you know there's an opportunity for designers to to work from that as a starting point to take that into consideration sure sure, sure. absolutely I mean I'm intrigued how did you two first meet was it leather that brought you together. <laughs> It rhymes. Um, I know, it's not that easy to say, actually. (laughs) Yeah, well, like I said, we had each in our own independent paths identified Mm. this as an interest. And it was actually a friend of mine who is a chef who heard Alice speak and became familiar with the work that she had done in her collection, which again, I'm sure we're about to talk about, who said, you know, I met someone, I think you two should have a conversation. That's how it happened. Because Sarah, you come from the world of regenerative farming. You were working as what vice president of programs at Glenwood in the Hudson Valley, north of New York. What were you doing there? Essentially, I was like the creative director of that organization, which had numerous okay. programs and projects working towards building a strong regional food system in the region of the Hudson Valley. So I was involved in a broad range of projects working with farmers and food professionals. And is it right you were a vegetarian? I was indeed. What changed? (laughs) Um, I learned about everything that we're speaking about, you know. So I was born and raised in New York City and had had really no exposure to farming or food production. Mm. And so my education around meat had uh, presented me with information that is not untrue, but is not the whole story, you know, which was that the meat that we were purchasing in the supermarket came from factory farms. And when I learned about the exploitative and environmentally destructive and inhumane practices of many industrialized factory farms, you know, I chose to reject it. However, when I then became really interested in food systems and in agriculture, I began to learn about the types of livestock systems that I just described. And I became involved through my work at Glenwood in collaborating firsthand with farmers who are prioritizing animal welfare, who are really looking after animals, and who are farming in such a way that, as I said, brings tremendous benefit. And the Hudson Valley is a a uh, hilly, rocky region in some places that is similar to some parts of Britain that grows good grass. And so ruminant animals are crucial in preserving the viability of those farms. And so I recognized if we wanted to appreciate the 
beautiful landscapes and viewscapes that we so love with working farms, then, then we had to be raising animals. And I felt that in my desire to support the viability of agriculture in a, a region where animals are, are crucial to those farm ecosystems, that I had to be an omnivore, but one that would value all parts of the animal. So I was able to do that from a culinary perspective, but not, of course, with the hide, asking a lot of questions of where the hide goes and what happens to the hide and not getting any good answers. Mm. Why did you decide to come to the UK? I love to travel. <laughs> And uh, and I wanted to live in Europe. I actually moved to France in 2019, but I got stuck in England at the beginning of the pandemic in the first lockdown. And being forced to stay became a choice to stay eventually. Yeah, we're not giving her back. <laughs> we trapped her. And when the pair of you met, was it obvious you should work together instantly? Well, for me, I had just finished a piece of work and I really wanted to pursue my interest in everything that we've just been discussing. And I received a phone call from Sarah, who we'd been connected through her friend. And I remember the conversation vividly and thinking, oh my gosh, I cannot believe someone else exists who is as fascinated in pursuing this as I am. And so it took a little time for us to put some shape around what that could be, because this was uh, quite a few years ago. And really having an idea of how we would pursue this work was very unknown. So yeah, I guess we didn't know at the outset that we would start a business and really pursue it in, um, seriously, but I definitely knew that it was very special to have somebody as interested as I was and also coming at it from a different perspective. So it's very fortunate. Mm, because I mean, Alice, you grew up in a farming community in Shropshire, your daughter of a vet. Were you always going to study fashion? Oh, yes. Was the Royal College of Art always going to be where you ended up? Oh, gosh, no. The Royal College of Art was definitely a, a a dream that I actually applied to sort of a total shot in the dark with no expectations of getting in. But I had always wanted to pursue fashion and education. In design, I have made, uh, ever since I can remember everything, my first sewing machine is still my most burning building, I'll be running out with that. Uh, so I, I always knew I, I wanted to pursue fashion and I was really encouraged by my parents to do so. So yeah, it was decided very early on. And I first went to the London College of Fashion to learn more about pattern making. So um, I had quite an intensive time there over the course of two years learning more about designer pattern cutting so really understanding construction of garments and materials relationship to that construction I then went to Edinburgh to continue my BA course in women's wear and then to my mother's dismay I thought let's carry on in education a bit longer and I'd love to learn more about accessory design and put my application into the RCA. She wanted you working by the no, way. No, she, she was incredibly, incredibly supportive. <laughs> but at that point, you know, I was doing a bit of a tour of the country and we didn't really think I would get in probably, but it was the most formative experience I've had in my education. And so I'm very grateful for her support and putting me through there. And was there a moment when you realised you had to work in leather? Well, I really didn't set out to work with leather when I had switched disciplines from women's wear to accessory design. That choice was really because I'd become a little disenchanted by making garments and clothes 
the discourse around sustainability in fashion and the surplus of clothes that we do have, I felt a little bit dejected. And so my desire to continue trying to find where I sat in the industry and how I could pursue my passion in design led me to look at accessory design, to look at the design and production of products that were almost closer to, in a sense, that we keep for a long duration. And it was from that point that I was introduced to working with leather because on our course, using leather as a material to create these items was it was sort of a given that we would start from that point because of its success in creating them. So I first started working with the material in my first year and I became fascinated by all things design-wise and also ethical and philosophically wise around it. Well, it's interesting because as you chart in your book, your RCA graduation project was looking at what you could do with a single sheep, mm-hmm. number 11458, if we're um, getting into detail, yeah. and essentially letting the material dictate your design. You used the meat from the, the animal for burgers at the opening and created woolen clothing, a handbag, wallet, shoes. The project went on to be acquired by the V&A. So was it a given, I wonder, to go on to cattle? Your father kept a small herd of Longhorn cattle, didn't he? Yeah. So that project, my MA project came about because as I had begun working with leather, many of the questions around using the material and also just a broader discourse of fashion and sustainability was in something we liked to have debates and discussions on as a cohort. And I found leather really interesting for that point. Also, the history of the material being so closely associated to what we perceive as very luxurious products in fashion. So more higher price points in luxury goods are products made from leather. And usually their value is attributed by whatever designer label is stamped onto it. In order for me to really explore What I wanted to be putting out into the world as a designer, I wanted to understand more about my relationship to that material. So the discourse was quite binary, leather or no leather. And it didn't feel that clear cut for me, having grown up in in Shropshire. My father was a farm vet. We didn't keep animals ourselves at our home, but my dad did have a small herd of longhorn cattle. But when it came to deciding what to do for my MA graduate collection, I wanted to be directed by materials that were uh, being produced around me and also that were connected to different systems that we all live in. And food and farming was a really important one I wanted to look at and sort of see the value of that material from the land and the producers and from a farming perspective. So creating that collection really introduced me to a concept of responding to what that material is and therefore what it's suited to make. As Sarah said earlier, the majority of leather produced globally comes from cattle because of their size and because of the volumes in which we rear them around the world. So it was pretty natural to go from a sheep to looking at the leather being produced from a cattle farmer. I was really, really lucky in that I was sitting around the table when I went home after graduating, sort of ruminating on this question of, I want to continue my design work. I want to continue my research to direct what work I want to create. And I need to learn more about farmers that are rearing cattle for meat. My uncle 
said, you've got to go and speak to Malcolm. He bought your father's cattle and he is a multi-generational farmer on the border of North Wales, just over in Wales, very close to where I lived and had been producing food for that community all of his life. So he was really the best person for me to go to start with. It's an interesting one because on this occasion, you, as the book charts, that you actually bought a bullock. And it feels to me like there are a few important characters in the book and in turning the animal into a series of products as well as food. There's the bullock 374 itself. Do you create an emotional bond with that cow? So I went to visit Malcolm in the summer of my graduation. And over the course of a couple of months, I would go back there to learn more from him, learn more about the dynamics of his way of farming and producing food and just understanding more about what that meant for his landscape and also what service he was really doing also for that community. And throughout those visits, we would walk around the farm, take the car out to the farm and have those conversations in the fields And he had pointed out on one of our earlier trips, which were the three animals that would be going to the abattoir next. So I knew that upon my first visit. And so I didn't know that it would be Bullock 374, which would be the animal that I would be purchasing. I didn't go into the field and choose. Point. Yeah, no, it was definitely not. (laughs) It's not like buying a puppy, in other words. (laughs) No, absolutely not. It was very much wanting to understand what are the rhythms of the food producers in this part of the world where I'm from and how do I, as somebody who's working with leather, be a part of that process? So what time of year he was going to be taking his animals, why also had to do with his farming system, his choice of breed, And so I really wanted to just put myself as a part of that journey. So I knew the week before when I'd signed the papers and put in my application to the Welsh government in order to take the hide back and the horns back that I would have Bullock 374. And then it was from that point where I travelled with Malcolm on the day to take them to the abattoir. And yeah, I felt really implicated in, in that journey. I was really a part of it, rather than just being on the receiving end of a piece of leather material or on the receiving end of a burger. I felt very much accountable for the decisions that were being made that day. Mm. So no bond with the Bullock, but I suspect a bond with Malcolm. Well, I wouldn't say not a bond with the bullock. I'm not too sure how you're meant to describe it. (laughs) I went in on the morning where we were taking the three bullocks to the abattoir and I had my uh, dictaphone and my camera with me throughout the whole process, not with the intention of, of putting the imagery into a book, which is probably quite evident when some have like four pixels and couldn't make it into the book. Um, but I went in and I and I took a photograph of Bullock 374 in the shed, which is now in the book, which I felt quite conflicted about very much at the time and also putting that onto paper because it was really confronting and it was a really important part of the process for me. So that sense of accountability carried on throughout the process. Every decision I made around the meat, around how to tan the hide, how to turn it into products. I felt a huge sense of responsibility to ensuring that value came and respect was really given to the fact that I had been a part of that process. Mm, So not a bond, but respect, which I think is quite interesting. Yeah. The other thing, and I have asked you about this before, I hope you don't mind me asking you again, but when I read the book, I got a sense, although it's never very stated overtly anyway, that, that your late father was in there. And I'm wondering how much of the project was about him. 
Yeah, it has been a wonderful revelation through um, knowing I'd always wanted to pursue design and fashion and not really seeing that in any way tied to my upbringing or my parents. But I think the fact that it's quite evident that we're influenced by our parents and their beliefs. And I really started by viewing leather as a material that was tied to an agricultural community and, um, and that that sense of connection was formed through my dad's work. So he would, um, you know, wanted us to have an understanding of how our food was produced and who buy and where. And he devoted his life to animals. My mum jokes that if they were ever to have been divorced, it would have been over a sheep. It wouldn't have been over anything else. And so it felt really quite um, ironic that I then had, especially through my MA, when you're already incredibly stressed, that all of my life for a year was centered around a sheep. And my mum was like, God, you're just your father's daughter. And so, yeah, I have found it very heartening that since my dad has passed away when I was 16, so it's taken a long while to find the connection through my work, but I was never going to turn out to be a vet, but I feel like this is as close to, um, you know, to responding really to what his Mm. values were as a person and what I hope he had sort of influenced me. It's lovely. It's lovely, Alice. I mean, Sarah, you write the final chapter of the book, I mean, really introducing British pasture leather. So did Bullock 374 set the template for the company? Definitely, because I think what was so brilliant about Alice's work on that project was that it is a very concise and elegant form of commentary on precisely the systems that we've been discussing here. So in the act of designing an entire collection from a single animal and presenting it in the way that it was presented, and I was fortunate to see it exhibited at the V&A in the exhibition, it was an illustration of both the problem and the opportunity. So it was certainly a jumping off point for us and I think remains a very useful illustration of the potential that we see you know, as we begin to make these connections. I mean, you've been going, what, four years now. So I'm interested in what your ambitions for the company are. Is the aim to disrupt the system or is it about giving consumers choice or both? It's both <laughs> because in order to have the second, we need to do the former. Yeah. But yeah, you know, the goal that we set out was to be provider of leather material to brands and artisans who are producing leather goods in order to provide that choice. So that just as we can go to the butcher counter and choose pasture-raised meat, you know, that if you are purchasing leather as a designer, so, you know, along the lines of what Alice has described in her design practice, or in fact, eventually as a, you know, as a purchaser of a leather product, whether that's a pair of shoes or a bag or a chair, that you, you might have the option to make that choice, to choose material that is associated with all the values that we've discussed of, you know, of animal welfare and an ecosystem benefit and rural sustainability. I think that what we have found is that, as you can probably imagine from everything we've described, it's so hugely complicated, not only to set up those systems, but also to garner sufficient value to make this viable, that in order to provide that choice of a material that has all of those qualities, there's quite a lot of other work that needs to be done, both in terms of infrastructure development, but also a shift in perception, as we've described. So we're doing all those things, you know, in, yeah, yeah. in, in, in the simple act of trying to produce and offer a leather material with a different story. 
And is your leather, I mean, presumably it costs more. Your customers are likely on the, the wealthier side. So the fact is that producing locally, producing entirely in the UK actually means that a lot of the costs are higher and especially the energy costs going up. You know, we're seeing the cost of production are quite high for us. And then again, you know, because at the moment, at least we're constrained to relatively small volumes, we don't have those economies of scale. We are additionally attempting to drive some value back to the farm level. So when we spoke earlier about the fact that the abattoir is the owner of the hide to sell it on into that hide trade, we obviously buy our hides from the abattoir as is necessary, especially because Again, you know, we mentioned before the crisis of the loss of small-scale rural abattoirs. It's that that value, that revenue that they derive from the fifth quarter is so crucial to their viability that we want to make sure that they get a fair price so that we're supporting the continued operation of small-scale abattoirs. But we're also opting to do something that is not typical in the leather supply chain, which is give some value to the farmers in recognition of the fact that their very high standards of practice and the story of their production is so much of what the value will be for the leather that we are producing. So there's a lot of extra costs or higher costs along our production, which means that, yes, the the, the material is more costly than a typical commodity leather. But I do think it's worth saying that leather is perceived as a cheap commodity because it is so abundant and because it can be produced cheaply elsewhere, that very often the price for that material that, you know, particularly brands that are making mass-produced products are paying for it is incredibly cheap and sometimes artificially cheap because some of those costs have been externalized, you know, again, apropos of everything we've been talking about along that supply chain. Well, hang on, hang because I think you might need to explain that to people. When you say costs have been externalized, what does that mean and how? Environmental costs of industrialized agriculture, the environmental costs of higher transport. So similar to food. So this is a concept that is, I think, more and more understood in terms of the production of cheap food. And again, you know, leather coming from those systems, I think to some extent has benefited from that. I think what I'm getting at more is just the idea that we perceive leather as a cheap and abundantly available commodity. And that is not what we are producing through our supply chain. And so it is a premium material with a premium value. 2024, hopefully, will be the moment when the leather material that we are making will be turned into product, commercialized product. So we're in discussions with various brands and potential users, excuse me, of our leather right now. And yes, to some extent... You can't tell us which brands though, Sarah, because you have can't done say that things yet. with Mulberry and New Balance. <laughs> yeah, we, I can't push you. <laughs> no, I can't say anything yet. Oh, um, it's disappointing. We did, yes, we did a wonderful project in 2022, which was an exhibition during the London Design Festival when there were a number of brands and artisans who took mm. some of the early production of our leather to make prototype products. So there, yes, there was a Mulberry handbag, there were New Balance trainers, there were other shoes and items of furniture in that show. None of those things have since been produced in a commercial way. So, you know, what we've really been working towards since then is building relationships with brands and, as I said, makers of leather goods who can turn that into product. And we're kind of right at the brink of that. And I wish I could tell you more, but I can't. (laughs) But I guess what I can say is that, you know, again, because at the moment we have small volumes of a premium value material Mm. that I think What's going to happen in the near term is that we will have high-end production of, of luxury products that will be a high-priced product alongside small volume 
very small scale artisanal production. You know, we were very interested in also supplying smaller independent workshops as well as larger brands. Okay. And it will take some economies of scale and some volumes before we can probably provide leather at a, at a lower price so that it's widely accessible. But that's certainly a goal. That's the goal. That's the goal for 2024. <laughs> very good. Well, look, it's a lovely, lovely way to leave it. Um, thank you so much for your time Alice and Sarah thoroughly enjoyed that it was an education oh thank you and, very um, much thank you so good nice luck to for talk the rest to you. of the year thank you thanks Field Fork Fashion is published by Chelsea Green Publishing and is available now to find out more about Sarah and Alice it's probably best to go to their Instagram page at british.pasture.leather As ever, to find other podcasts that I've done and to sign up to our newsletter, go to materialmatters.design. And there are images relating to the interviews on our Instagram page, which is also materialmatters.design. Finally, this is really important too. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us from. And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash materialmatters. For as little as £2.50 a month, you can receive an invite to various Material Matters events, as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. Material Matters is a completely independent concern, and any help you can offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks very much for listening.